listening to. You're listening to Redacted, hosted by Lucy Bishop, Fraser Greenfield, and Louis Mills. Our guest this episode is John Moriello. To those who don't know who John Moriello is, he's done design work for brands like Amazon, Logitech, Qualcomm, and Collier, and is an adjunct professor at the California College of the Arts. But you may know him best for his YouTube channel, Design Theory. Welcome to the show, John, and thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Fraser. It's an honor. Tell us your origin story, John. My brother actually studied industrial design. That's what I was going to do as well, because I basically would just copy whatever my brother did. In addition to that, my mother actually went to design school at New York School of Interior Design, which is probably the premier interior design school in the United States. And she did that as a second career. I kind of knew that I was going to do it quite early on. I would say around 11 or 12 years old. Wow, that's pretty cool. In terms of how I got started, I mean, it's super cliche, but I just built stuff out of Legos and building stuff with my brother. Usually what would happen is my brother would build something very deftly and with great skill and craftsmanship, and then I would try to help him, but in that process, I would basically destroy whatever he was making. He was nice enough to not discourage me in that process, and he was always very kind when I would ruin his creations, and he never beat me up too much when that happened. So that was nice of him. Big shout out to Joe, my brother. When we spoke to Dave Joseph, he had a very similar affinity for Lego as a child that led him to industrial design as well. So that's how you discovered it. How did you first break in? Because I knew that what I was going to do from a young age, I pretty much just spent a lot of time building things. I shaped a bunch of my own surfboards when I was in high school. First time that I built an actual product that was then used for an end use case. I was about maybe 16, 17 years old. And really that's where it all started. The rest is history pretty much. And then of course it built from there. I went to school, I went to college. I was okay, and then I gradually got better. I got much better after I graduated school for some reason. I was kind of a late bloomer in that regard. My portfolio and my work was, it wasn't terrible, but it also, it wasn't spectacular by any stretch for several years, even after I graduated. It didn't start to really pick up the pace until I was a few years out of school. You find you found yourself more inspired and more interested in it once you graduated university was that the push that kept you going or is this more kind of like pays get degrees while you're in uni i don't know what it was i think i sort of realized at a certain point if i'm gonna do this i'm either gonna be the best that i can possibly be at it or i'm just gonna do something else and i don't know when exactly that happened i think it happened kind of gradually But after a certain point, it's like, well, what am I even doing with this profession? Because if you're trying to make money, there are way easier ways to do it. So it's not for money. And then it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to do it, I might as well be the best or the best that I can be. I'm not saying that I'm I'm not the best industrial designer, whatever. I don't even know how you would define that, but I wanted to be the best that I could be. And I don't know, something just sort of happened. 
roughly around the time that I started teaching part-time. For some reason, that sort of set it off, I think. That's really interesting because I was going to say, do you think it had anything to do with not studying industrial design and then having to like work on the side, like being able to focus on it in a more full-time capacity, but it's almost like the opposite of what happened? Yeah, it is the opposite of what happened. I think it's because when you're working in a design studio, a lot of it's very focused on technical tasks at the junior level. A lot of it's very focused on technical tasks at the junior level. It's not super creative. I mean, if we're being honest, a lot of it's just like, you know, CAD and solving little mini puzzles for certain things around manufacturing or, you know, how to mold this part. They're like little details. You're not really working on the whole thing. Let's just say as an example, if you're working on, I don't know, a faucet. I did a lot of faucets. It's rare that I would get a chance to design the whole faucet, which is kind of crazy because a faucet in itself is already pretty stripped down. There's not a whole lot there. But I was working on like the handles for the faucet and things like that. And I think once I started to get further into my career and I started to see the larger context in terms of how design can inform culture and can inform the overall success or failure of a business, that's when it became a lot more interesting to me. And I think that's when I started to spend more time doing it. Are there any times during this career path where you sort of thought to give it up? Yes. Which time would you like me to talk about? <laughs> Maybe the time that you came the closest to giving up completely. So the time that I came the closest was in March of 2020. I had just gotten laid off. That wasn't fun. That wasn't really enough to make me quit. I had one job lined up. We had a signed offer letter and I was going to start working. And then they rescinded the offer. And that really upset me. Then I was going into an interview for another company. And as I was walking into the interview, the hiring manager canceled on me. I was walking into the building and the guy's like, oh, sorry, we got, we have to reschedule. Sorry for that inconvenience. I hope you didn't get here early. That was so demoralizing to me. And in combination with all of the other things that I was just like, I was kind of over it. At that point, I spoke to one of my friends about it, my mentor, Rafi, and he was like, you know what, maybe you do end up quitting industrial design, but my advice to you would be to just work on stuff that you think is interesting without any sort of expectation around it leading to a job. So just do stuff that you think is interesting, creative things, and take the time to basically just do fun things. And that's what I did. Part of it was I started the YouTube channel partially as a last-ditch effort to just share the knowledge that I had amassed over the previous, I'd say, nine or so years. I was like, well, I don't want this knowledge to go to waste, so I'll start sharing it on YouTube because I might end up quitting industrial design entirely. And then another aspect of it was messing around in Houdini, which is a visual effects software. That knowledge in that software it resulted in me getting one of my biggest clients at that particular time. So it was really lucky. Honestly, a lot of this stuff just boils down to luck. 
and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, it still sounds like you made your own luck there, though. I know we can all sort of get a bit disillusioned with industrial design and working in the industry, but I think it's really important when you said you started to follow things that you were passionate about, and maybe people saw that, and they did that Houdini project, and then you managed to sort of get back probably on a career path that you enjoyed even more than the trajectory that you were going before. It's interesting you bring that up because I think that is actually when I started to get pretty good or a lot better at industrial design than I was. Because prior to that, I was mostly just focusing on fitting into the mold of what makes good industrial design, good quote unquote industrial design. And that's like stuff that makes it on the design blogs, which is pretty much exclusively minimalist, monochromatic, consumer electronics. Don't forget paid for $400 a feature. <laughs> After a certain point, it's like, okay, we're doing these really high quality renderings of rounded rectangles. And it just didn't really resonate with me. It's not in line with what companies care about. And I think once I started branching out from that, that's when I started to see a lot of forward momentum. And it was very, very fast. It was actually pretty much exponential. I went from 100 subscribers to about 200 in, in a couple days once I posted like a pretty good video. And then it tripled in like three weeks to like, you know, 700 or 800. And then it went up to 5,000. And then within less than a year, I went from 100 subscribers to 10,000 subscribers. And then I went from 10,000 subscribers to 100,000 subscribers in like 10 months or 11 months. And then I went from 100,000 to 160 something, whatever it is at now. 163. Yeah, in like four months. And I don't even upload that many videos. I think I uploaded like five or six videos since I hit 100K. Obviously, the follower count is irrelevant in terms of your success in the field. But it tracks very, very closely with other big professional milestones. I'm just using the subscriber count as something that's a measurable metric, but everything else was improving as well. I don't know if it's because of that, but at the same time as that was happening. I feel like your videos are always so captivating. I am always like really glued to them. I feel like you find a way to make them hard hitting and... It's really, really good. Like, I wish I had a resource like that while I was at university. Thanks. I appreciate you. I enjoyed that one about Dali too more recently. I've sent it to like everybody I know. I particularly sent it to my father because I was like, this is going to blow his mind. And he's like, this changes everything. I know. It's nuts, isn't it? I'm actually surprised that the whole AI thing isn't getting more traction. Absolutely. I was trying to talk about it to some guys at my work and one of them just turned around and said to me, like, I looked into that last night and I just cried. He's like, I feel like our job is over. And I was like, feels like you've missed the point. I feel like if I could have a client communicate exactly what they wanted, wouldn't that be incredible? Communication is just so important and I feel like it's an incredible tool. I would say like the people who are mostly technicians are the ones who are most at risk of having their job be replaced by artificial intelligence. The thing about AI is that there's nothing 
unique about it in terms of its impact as a technology. And maybe that's a bit presumptuous. I guess I can't say that definitively, but we've been through this before. I mean, industrial designers literally replaced artisanal craftsmen almost completely. There's still a place for artisanal goods and craftsmanship and all that stuff on a personal customized level, but industrial designers have replaced that paradigm. And AI is just the next progression of that. Maybe industrial designers will get replaced by it, but if you're adaptable, you'll be fine. I don't think it takes that much ingenuity to figure out like, okay, how can I leverage this to turn this into a bigger part of my profession? Or at least that's how I see it personally. Yeah, I personally just see it as like an incredible tool that we'll have at our disposal. And like, maybe you're right, maybe that does mean like the actual workforce will get smaller, but be interesting to see how it becomes more efficient at the same time and like the windows that it opens and opportunities i don't know to counterpoint objectively speaking the electric car was better than the petrol car in the 1900s and it was better than the petrol car in the 1990s and it didn't take off buses and trolleys are better than cars didn't take off in a lot of places around the world i do wonder whether Systems like DALI and Midjourney will just failure to launch for a lot of industries simply because people will look at them and go, I don't want it. How many of these technologies will not be adopted simply because people don't want them, even though they are objectively better than what already exists? Well, I think it comes down to accessibility. I don't know enough about it to really comment on it, but my understanding is that it would be much harder to build an electric car than it would be to use an AI model that already exists. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. Hmm. I can't build an electric car with Google. If the tool is out there, I don't see why people wouldn't use it, especially if it helps with efficiency because companies really, really like efficiency. They love that shit. It's like crack for them. Because it is so efficient and effective, I just don't see how companies would not adopt it. I could be wrong though. I could be totally wrong. People are notoriously bad at predicting the future, so I'm not making a claim either way, but, well, I kind of am. I really just don't see a world where AI isn't a dominant part of design and the design process. One other thing I want to mention is that it could mean that there are fewer industrial design jobs. It could mean that. Or it could just mean that things are more fragmented. So because you require less overhead to execute on a design, Maybe it's just a bunch of smaller teams working on a multitude of projects rather than like giant corporations pumping out products for the masses. Because the tools are so much more accessible and because of all these other technologies like, you know, the internet and being able to access a niche audience, I don't think it's improbable that it would just sort of turn into like a bunch of little mini micro businesses almost. You're catering to a much smaller audience, and that's what industrial designers do instead of working for giant corporations. Of course, you'd still have the designers at the giant corporations, too. It could very easily turn into something like that. What's that going to do for wages? I think that it depends. I can tell you from my personal experience, you can make pretty good money by having a little micro brand. I don't even spend all of my time or effort on it, and I do pretty well with it. That's just one case study, and if I can do it, there's no reason why other people can't find their niche. 
You're listening to Redacted. To stay up to date with the show and see what else we've got going on, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at redacted underscore design POD. Subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. Cheers. How would you describe the differences and challenges working in education compared to working as a consultant? Well, in education, you don't get to pick who you're going to work with. You just have to work with the students that are given to you. That's been a pretty good thing, though, because I have been able to learn how to work with the most difficult students you could possibly imagine and actually get them to put out some pretty damn good work. I think it's been a good thing in the long run, but man, it was a real challenge in the beginning. Every single student is a little bit different and people tend to work with people that they relate to on some level, but there are some students where it's just like, man, I do not know where this person is coming from, but I need to figure it out very quickly in order to help them to excel. And that's been a pretty fulfilling thing, actually. It's something that I'm pretty proud of, that I can get pretty much any student to significantly improve. Over the course of a semester, yeah, that's been a pretty rewarding experience, actually. I would say that's probably the biggest difference. Obviously, you can have nightmare clients, but the thing is you can fire them. You can't fire your students. I mean, I guess you can fail them. It comes with other problems, right? Yeah, yeah, that comes with other problems. And don't get me wrong, I still will fail a student without any hesitation if they're not up to the standard that's necessary. But for whatever reason, it's just easier to work with somebody if, if you're the teacher and they're the student. And it's not like a dictatorial thing. It's just like, okay, well, this guy's the teacher. Maybe I should kind of listen to something that he's saying. Whereas with a client, it's more of a collaboration. And sometimes they can really get led astray if they're not very strategic in their decision making. And, you know, you can do everything you can to advise them and tell them to go in a certain direction. But as soon as you feel like you're at a point where you're trying to convince them, you've already lost. You've lost control of the client. And at that point, you probably shouldn't be working with them anymore because you don't trust each other for whatever reason. It could be your fault. It could be the client's fault. It doesn't really matter whose fault it is. The bottom line is that the relationship has reached a point where you're not creating the best work that you can and you got to part ways. Pretty interesting your points about teaching and working with students i always thought it'd be like quite interesting working with essentially like a pool of minds that all work in their own different ways they'll be quite inexperienced but do you ever find yourself learning things from the students as well yes absolutely as an individual i have way more knowledge than the average student i mean that's to be expected right however one thing that's really interesting is that each of those students probably knows a couple of things that I don't. And if you have 15 or 20 students, you learn a lot in a semester as a teacher. In fact, you could argue that the person who learns the most in a semester is the teacher, not necessarily the students, which might piss them off a lot because they're the ones who are paying all this money to go there. The truth of the matter is that if you're a teacher, you're much more invested in every single person whereas as a student you tend to be more invested in your individual project the dynamic is very different
So the lesson there is if you're a student, pay attention to everything else that's going on in the studio. That's the lesson there. And it applies to everything in life too. I mean, even if you're, you know, the junior designer working on a team, all that kind of stuff, always pay attention to everything that's going on around you. The life hack, get paid to learn. Yeah. Yeah. This is John Marshall. You're listening to Redacted. What would you say is the weakness of the local design culture and what are its strengths? Regarding this question, one thing you have to keep in mind is that I've only spent time in San Francisco as a designer. My reason for bringing that up is that there's nothing for me to compare it to. One thing I will say is that on average, people are not nearly as supportive as they could be. So just as an example, I had my first job out of school. I was working at this company and I ended up leaving and my boss was at a design event. So I was out of this company for about a year. I hadn't seen my boss in a while and I see him at this design event. And we make eye contact from sort of across the room and I wave to him. He just immediately turns around, just totally just ignores me. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Maybe he didn't see me. Maybe it was a mistake. And then later on, he came up to me when he was ready or whatever. And, you know, we had a normal conversation. A couple months later, I saw him at another design event and the same thing happened. I'm like, okay, this definitely isn't an accident. This is some like sort of weird, insecure power play that I'm dealing with. I have no idea what the hell is going on here. It is weird. And I think that is the biggest thing with industrial designers. They feel such a strong need to protect whatever their little fiefdom is. Maybe he wasn't trying to protect anything. I have no idea what his intention was, but the whole thing was just so strange. And I think it stems from the fact that industrial design is a very competitive field. So people feel the need to defend whatever it is that they have. And also a lot of industrial designers were like the weird art kid who was picked on a lot in high school. And they just sort of carry that chip on their shoulder throughout their lives. Also kind of wonder if it has to do with designers having a bit of an ego and whether it's a bit of like an ego thing. Yeah, it might be. I have no idea what it is, but it's something that I notice a lot in the design field. Everybody's very, very protective of their knowledge and the way that they do things. I shouldn't say everybody, but many people, many, many people. Look, if you're in the San Francisco design scene, you're probably a perfectly nice person. Most people are really, just really nice. But there are a couple people that are just like, oh my God, what is even going on here? Like the guy who only wanted to talk to me on his terms, like at his convenience, like the whole thing. It's just ridiculous to me. I still can't get over it like eight or nine years later. It's like, what was that? It's not that different here, though. I feel like people think it's really zero sum, and it's really surprising. I know when I finished uni and I was working on building a portfolio to send out, I was asking a whole bunch of people if I could look at their folios. And even people who were my close friends, they'd be like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll send it to you. And you just never hear back. Everyone's work is so different that if you're going to hire someone else, you were probably never going to hire me for that position. Even if that's not the case, it's like you got to build a relationship with the people around you. Totally. Nobody's isolated. 
the whole thought of it is just completely ridiculous. I understand why they do it because it's like, well, it's a competitive field. I need to take advantage of every skill set, every every little mind trick that I can. It just seems like a miserable way to go through life. I guess that's really the bottom line. You know what I mean? To counterpoint, I have noticed that like when you do give something away, it no longer becomes yours. So like a good example would be, and this is going back years now, a colleague of mine back in uni, we created an InDesign template so we could do our folios, which I think back in the early days, everyone did by hand, stitching them together in Illustrator or Photoshop or drawing it all down on paper. So we did it all in InDesign and we had a template. And I think we shared that template with one person saying, oh yeah, this saves us a lot of time so I can get some sleep. We just scan all the images in and transfer it over and we drop it in this template. And Bob's your uncle. I produced the folio for the project on the spot. And it takes me 20 minutes instead of four hours. And by the end of the year, I got called in to a meeting with a professor being accused of plagiarism because the top student of the class had used my template, fonts and all, for their project. And of course, I hadn't stopped using it. So what? I make a living out of sharing all of my secrets on YouTube for the entire internet to see. And people literally copy my quotes word for word without crediting me. And it's like, okay, well, who cares? I, that just means I got to go on to the next thing. I like hoard my little stupid secrets or I can, you know, share what I know and become basically somebody who's actually trying to improve the field and people recognize me and hire me because of that. And who cares if people copy me? Big deal. It wasn't so much the fact that I was copied. It was more the fact that I was then reported for plagiarism. And then that person who actually did borrow the work didn't want to acknowledge it. Yeah, that's shitty, but that's how it's going to be. If you're going to do anything good, people are going to copy you. You just got to get over it. That's my advice to anybody. What are you going to do? Just like hide all your secrets and not learn from each other? I mean, sure, you can do that, but you're only going to get so far. I can guarantee you that. I didn't do it consciously for the first five or six years of my career, but I didn't share any knowledge or talk about any of this stuff with anybody else. And it did not get me very far. If you want to be an authority in the field, you share your work. Yeah, I agree. Lift each other up and then the industry can only get better. So how many of these people don't want to share because they're already in a good position and they don't want to have to defend it? It's easy to outdo the people who are defending because they're too busy thinking about how to defend their position rather than how to innovate. I don't even have to worry about them. They're completely irrelevant already. Love your attitude, John. Amazing. <laughs> I feel like it rings a lot of truths. That was savage. Man, I'm going to have to get some fire emojis going in the chat because that was just cool. <laughs> John with the flames in the background. You're listening to Redacted. So, John, we've glazed over your career a little bit, but I just wanted to know, are there any projects that you have that will be like a favorite project? Anything you'd like to talk about a bit? No, not really. I will tell you my favorite project is the next one. Whatever the next one is. <laughs> I don't care. I just like design. I like the process. I know that a couple of you guys mentioned that 
some projects are cooler than others. And that definitely has some truth to it. Ugh, I don't want to insult anybody, but let's be honest. AR glasses are probably a little bit cooler than toilets. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I still kind of like designing toilets for a little bit. It was kind of fun. You know, you made a bunch of poop jokes. You, uh, you know, spent a lot of time around toilets. It was it wasn't so bad. So, yeah, my answer is that I don't have a strong preference in terms of my favorite project just because I'm really passionate about the design process as a whole. Are there any influences out there that you would say had a big impact on you or you'd recommend to others? I'm a bit of an outlier in that. I shouldn't say that I'm an outlier. That's not really true. I would say I'm a bit of like an outsider is probably a better word in the sense that I tend to look at other sources of inspiration, like Nicolas Cage is a big source of inspiration for me and the way that he approaches his acting and his style. My brother is a big source of inspiration for me. My parents are. I also had really, really good models for success. My mother was very successful in her first career before she had me, and my dad is a very good surgeon, eye surgeon. I would say those people are most inspiring to me. I'm really inspired by people who really push the envelope in terms of anything, really, sports, anything like that. That isn't to say that I don't respect a lot of really great designers' work. I love Tim Zarkey's work. That guy is a freaking genius. Holy crap. And he's super nice. Super humble, really, really nice guy. Has an incredible eye. Yeah, that guy is just so freaking good. Zarki, if you ever want a job or if you ever need uh, extra rendering work, let me know. You can render my whole damn portfolio. I'll pay you whatever you want. That guy is awesome. And I think the reason why I like him so much is because he's not just focused on this very, very narrow tunnel vision of industrial design. He's trained as an industrial designer, but he's doing all this stuff with visual effects, with animation, with growth simulations, with all sorts of other things that don't really directly relate to his immediate domain. But because of that, he just comes up with spectacular work. And I've been basically modeling a lot of my process around how I'm formulating a portfolio based on what he's been doing over the past couple of years. That's really cool. Yeah, he's the man. I feel like as a designer, the further that you can push your interests and your curiosity, the better design outcomes you'll get. The more information that you can bring in, the more ways that you can remix it into like new innovations as well. I agree 100%. The only way to be a great designer is if you're infinitely curious. I think it's just an absolutely central prerequisite to being a great designer. You have to be curious about the world around you, not just this narrow field of industrial design. And don't get me wrong, you do need to specialize and sort of like really hunker down and refine your skills and refine your craft. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but there is definitely something to be said for just really expanding outward in a very broad way in order to round out your skill set as well. I think that's something that's really missing from a lot of design work, in my opinion. What do you think the next big trend in design will be for the next year or so? I have no freaking idea. <laughs> I read this question. I was like, I don't know, man. I already did a whole video on AI, and I think that is definitely going to be a big trend moving forward. But besides that, I don't know. What do you guys think? 
I'm actually really excited by this question. I was reflecting on it last night, how we took a whole bunch of predictions at the start of the year. And out of all the predictions, literally no one said that we're going to have an AI rendering creative machine. And it just really makes me think like, that was never something that occurred to me. What other little hidden gems are we about to like stumble across that are completely going to change the way we innovate, the way we create, the way that we interact with the world, the way that we communicate with each other? It's really exciting. I agree 100%. I think transparent electronics are going to make a big comeback. I've been pushing for that recently. <laughs> like the old sort of Mac computers in there. A Game Boy aesthetic. They're all the rage in prisons. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Legit, in prisons, all the electronics, that's transparent so that the guards, when they walk through, can be like, oh, someone's clearly put a shank in their computer monitor. Prison tech, yeah. Are transparent. There's a good video that we'll put in the show notes of that. I know the one you're talking about. I'll link it. Truly fascinating. I had no idea. It's a whole world that I'm going to research. It's actually amazing. Ollie designs some stuff for prisons, and I was talking about it the other day. Like when we design products at our work, like we make like a weight claim or like some sort of strength claim, and then we test it to like one and a half times that for misuse because we assume people aren't intentionally going to try to break the products. But like every product that Ollie designs, Every person that interacts with it is trying to break it, use it to injure someone, or pull it apart to escape. Or put it inside themselves to uh, smuggle. Yeah, like what a huge responsibility, like when it goes wrong. Wow. Whole new world. That's the new trend. Everything's going to become more and more prison-like. One thing I'd really like to add, my mentor Rafi Manassian has been my biggest design influence. I think it's actually really important to mention that. I probably would have quit design already if it wasn't for Rafi. So shout out to Rafi. Just wanted to mention that. So on that path, if anyone is having trouble at the moment with their journey on industrial design, what advice would you give to them moving forward in the career? Look, if you want to talk to me, you can talk to me on the Design Theory Discord and we can discuss whatever you're going through. I can't guarantee I'll be online at the time. I can't guarantee that I'll be able to answer right away, but I will answer eventually. And another really great thing about the Design Theory Discord is that there are thousands of other people on there who will probably be able to do a way better job than I ever could in terms of giving you advice. If you want to go in that community, it's very supportive. There's a lot of shit posting, so it's a lot of fun. And you can talk in there Fraser is actually in there pretty regularly as well. That would be my advice. I think you should talk to somebody who's been in the field for a little while, whether that's me or somebody else in the Design Theory Discord or just anyone, anyone that you look up to. That's an open invitation for all of you to join that community, and I will do my best to answer everyone. I get a lot of messages every day, and I, I try to respond to every single one. And I'll, I'll continue to do that for as long as I possibly can. And you'll find a link to that in the show notes. You're listening to Redacted. Well, John, thank you very much for being here. It's been a real privilege. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. It's, it's been an honor. You guys ask great questions, so it's always a lot of fun, and you guys are great. 
Love you guys. You're the best. Optus advises that the number you have dialed has been disconnected. Optus advises that the number you have dialed has been disconnected. Redacted. 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 Redacted.